Hello, folks, and welcome to the next episode of the Work Item Podcast. There's no single well-defined path to becoming a product manager. There are more questions than answers when it comes to figuring out which skills are necessary, what books or blog posts to read, or which courses to take. Dan Olson, the author of the Lean Product Playbook, former product leader at Intuit, Friendster, Box, and the U.S. Navy, yes, he worked on submarine design, shares with us some insights on what it means to grow as a product manager. Enjoy the show. Hello, folks. Welcome to our weekly episode of the Work Item Podcast. I'm really, really excited about our guest today, who is Dan Olson, who is a product leader. He has uh, been writing this book. It's called The Lean Product Playbook. Big fan. Welcome, Dan. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be here. So, Dan, why don't you tell us more about what you do? Because you have such a broad spectrum of activities. I'd love to learn more about you. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, I um, these days I do have a broad spectrum. I um, first and foremost, I largely uh, am a product management trainer. So I teach workshops to product teams, both private at companies and public. And sometimes it's just product people, sometimes it's cross-functional teams. So that's what I spend a lot of time doing. Above me on that, I speak at conferences and also at company events. Increasingly, you see companies having like internal product management days, like once a, once a year or once a quarter. So I speak at a lot of those. I spend some time advising CEOs and product leaders on product strategy, on building their orgs, on training their people, on applying the concepts from my book. And then I also uh, organized for seven years, this month is actually the seven year anniversary of the Lean Product Meetup that I run. It's basically uh, what used to be in Silicon Valley, now it's online. So it's actually been cool. One of the advantages of taking online is we have people from around the world. We just crossed 10,000 members. So it's one of the world's largest product communities. And each month I host a speaker. And then uh, once a year, I also help um, plan an event called the Product Leader Summit with some friends as well. So that's, that's the kind of most of the stuff that I do um i think most of what i got that's quite a bit yeah. how did it change with the coronavirus pandemic because you mentioned that the meetup shifted to online yeah well in the workshops everybody wants you to fly to them when you're doing private workshops so you know the last trip i took was to dubai to train kareem which got acquired by uber for three million uh, three billion dollars um so you know that was the last trip that i did so before ooh, coronavirus every two weeks i was flying around to different places I actually was working with another client they had like six different offices around the world so i was flying around you know mainly the states but also ireland to train their people so all that has now gone online so as a result i am not traveling so i don't have any jet lag so that's the advantage it's actually a good thing i didn't realize i was kind of traveling a little too much and it kind of wears you out. Um, so it was kind of nice to not have travel. Um, I was a big Zoom fan before coronavirus. I've become an even bigger Zoom fan now. And so it's been good. And I've adapted the workshops. You know, I do think, um, you know, when there's challenges like that and you can't do things in person, there are also opportunities. So I've managed to adapt the workshops to make, uh, have all the content be online and Google Docs, you know, and, and the interactive exercises and make them even interactive. It's not, you know, it's always nice to get together in person, but we try to replicate as much as we can. And then on the meetup, yeah, I mean, I was sitting there and I was like, well, I guess I have to take it online. And then as soon as we published our first event a year ago, it was a year ago that we took it online, all these people texted me and messaged me and said, hey, this is great. I've always wanted to go to your meetup, but I couldn't because I don't live in the Bay Area. And so it's been nice. It's been really good. And I think that we'll hopefully keep that going, you know, because just have a larger footprint and have more people come. So the other cool thing is we're not constrained. Like our room, we used to hold it at Intuit at headquarters where I started my product management career. And the room can only hold 180 people. 
Well, in December, we had over 500 people for our event. So it's like the physical constraints are gone, right? So, and, and again, people can come in from all over the world and ask questions. So you ever feel like you're going to get back to the previous mode of operation or is this going to be a hybrid? I hope so. No, I hope so. I mean, I, I hope so. And I think I think there will be a desire. You know, there's a little bit of overhead that we didn't want to, you know, I played around with streaming the event before, just didn't quite take off. I think everybody's used to streaming into events now. So I think when we do go back, Hopefully we will go back. We'll keep the live streaming going and have it be a hybrid event where, you know, if you're in town, if you're here, you can go to it live. Uh, and if you're not, we'll still keep uh, keep it virtual. So there's I think a, it's worth doing that given the success we've seen. Right. There's a certain benefit of just human connection, seeing somebody in person. No, you know, it's funny then. It's like a big part of that meetup. Obviously, people come to see the speaker and, and the kind of speakers we get are the kind of speakers that you don't you get at conferences. They're like, you know, top authors and things like that. They wouldn't go to a meetup normally. But then a big part of it is the networking. Before the speaker, we have like 30 minutes where we have dinner and people hang out. And then afterwards, people hang out forever. I've tried to replicate that at our meetups uh, online with Zoom breakout rooms. But it's amazing the number of people that suddenly leave and don't stick around for the breakout rooms when it's digital versus, you know, versus in life, in real life. So, yeah, I agree. That would be nice to get. That's the main component that I that people miss and that I miss. But but. But it's been good. It's been good. That's great. I am very hopeful about 2021 and beyond. So Me too. I want to get into your career because you are a product leader. And again, I've read your book many, many times and you have a, a wealth of experience. What bootstrapped it all? Where did you get started? Yeah. Well, thanks for reading the book so many times. I appreciate it. I honestly think the the very beginning of the story probably goes back to when my parents bought me a computer. <laughs> When I was in fifth grade, they bought me a computer. And so I was just very comfortable. You know, back then, you know, I had an Atari. So I'm, I'm older, guys. So I had an Atari 2600 that I like. You play some games on. And then I got a computer. And that was like, you know, the ultimate game machine. So you're playing computer games. But he also naturally just learned to code back then, you know. And so I just learned to code. I, I'd code things. I'd play around with things. I'd design fonts. I'd, you know, just try to make a game. Things like that. So I was just very comfortable with that. And then in college, I was an electrical engineering major. And I was into computers, so I focused on digital systems and computers. So again, I got to you know learn how computers work and things like that. Then the job that I got after school, I was uh, I was uh, in the Navy, and I got a job designing submarines. And so that job was a very technical job that dealt a lot with design and requirements and things like that, which was great. And then uh, I, while doing that job, I got a master's in industrial engineering at Virginia Tech, which kind of whetted my appetite for the business side of things. So industrial engineering is a great degree. It's engineering. And so you're learning about, you know, operations research and things like that. But you're also taking business related classes like economics and, and things like that. So it was it was great as a kind of a stepping stone to go, you know what, I really want to get more involved on that side of the world. And then I that after my um, time in the Navy was up, I, I kind of figured I wanted to go to business school. And then I went to business school. And that's when I was like, okay, I discovered product management as a career choice. And once I realized that it was available as a career choice, I was like, that sounds like what I want to do. And, and that's kind of what led me down the path of product management. It's interesting that I hear that story a lot about engineers going into product management. Do you feel like mm -hmm. product managers need to be technical to be successful? They don't. They don't. And it's funny. I want to clarify, like, so there's like, you know, being an engineer, I'm an electrical engineer by training. My work in the Navy was actually a lot of mechanical engineering and there's chemical engineering and biomedical engineering. So it's those kinds of engineering. In the software world, we use engineering for software developers interchangeably. So there's all those different engineering backgrounds. So the question I usually get is like, do you need to be able to code? Do you need to be like technical from a computer science standpoint? And I don't think you do. I feel like a lot of companies, some companies started that trend of like, hey, we're only going to hire PMs that have a CS 
S background or double E background. And I think it's just kind of, uh, it's kind of a, it's a blunt instrument. And I think the logic goes, well, we want the PMs to work well with engineers and we want them to be respected by the engineers. And so if they have a CS degree, that's, that's uh, much more likely to happen. And, you know, that's not true. I mean, you can have a CS degree and still not be respected by the engineers. You cannot have a CS degree and be respected. You know, probably the odds are you're going to be more respected by the engineers. But I think it's a little extreme to say you have to have a you have to be able to code, right, or have a CS degree. Um, I think that's a little too extreme. I do think in certain technical disciplines, if it's you know, if your target audience is developers, if that's who your customer is, you're building developer tools, for example, then it's probably a lot more relevant. But just kind of a general rule saying we only hire PMs that are that have a CS background, I think that's a little too extreme. You know, there's a lot of people, especially that got into PM earlier. You know, that would be the path to get in. And, you know, for my path, my transition point was business school, which was a more common transition point for a lot of people back then as well. So I think it helps, but you don't need it. And I think what I would say, and I've thought about this a lot, actually, because for those of you that are technical and got a CS degree, it's like, okay, you learned how to code in Java. You know, you did it for 10 classes and I'm not going to minimize it, but you learned, you learned, you know, how to do a bubble sort. You learned about complexity theory. You learned about a lot of stuff and you learned how to do some stuff in Java. And then you went and got your first CS job and they wanted you to do Python and JavaScript, which you've never done before, right? And and do a server architecture, which you've never done before because you just wrote some algorithm. I mean, and it's gotten a lot better, don't get me wrong. Obviously, there's certain degree programs where you're actually building real working web, web apps and things like that. But academia tends to lag, right? And you're in the old days, you were learning C. It's like, hey, I'm learning how to program in C and then you're going to go be a web developer. You're not doing any C. So, you know, I think what's valuable is just to understand, hey, what's on the front end? What's on the back end? How do these things interrelate? When I am requesting a feature or a change, what is that? What are the implications? Is that impacting the front end, the back end, the database? Like what what's required? And you just want to avoid like, you know, asking for something that you think is small that's really going to take like, you know, six people weeks of effort. Avoid those kind of mismatches so you don't have you don't lose credibility. You know, that's what I think. Um, and I think that if you are technical, it helps you, you know, problem solve better with the developers. If they're like, well, to do that, it's going to be really tough. It's going to take a lot of time. And then you can hopefully be like, well, what about this? What about this? Right. At the end of the day, we're not the ones coding it, but it can help you partner more effectively with them. But again, it's not critical. I don't think you need. I've seen plenty of PMs. And the funny thing is, I'll say, because you started your question with engineering background, some of the best PMs I've had on my teams are mechanical engineers, actually. And I have a theory about like that coming from submarines. The other one, I also had a rock stars that were architects. And I think that architects and, and mechanical engineers, what's interesting is you have to focus in engineering in general, you have to focus on what are the requirements and you've got these rules like mother nature and science and constraints that you have to operate against, right? And so I think that they're used to kind of, maybe their brains have been trained in that kind of discipline of what are the requirements, what are the objectives, what are the constraints, what are the trade-offs, you know, to come up with the optimal solution. So do you think that it can be harmful? One of the things that I've noticed myself being mm, a yeah. uh, computer science graduate, and I consider myself technical, but what I've noticed right. is when you have a problem, your brain just kind of instantly jumps to that solution. I know how to implement this. I know exactly right. how this should work. When That's right. product managers should generally be thinking a little bit from a higher altitude. What do you think about that? I, I agree it can do that, right? And and I've seen the, a comparable thing on the design side is if you have a PM that came from design, they might just create the mockups themselves. And it's interesting because in the PM world, you know, one of the beautiful things about the meetup or any PM conferences is PMs actually get together and they get to compare notes. PM can often be a very lonely job in the sense that you have no one to compare notes with, right? Because you are the sole PM. And then of course you're working with dev and design and QA and other people. 
but you typically don't work on a day-to-day -day basis very closely with other PMs. So it's kind of like this divide and conquer thing. So you don't get to you know compare notes much. And you a lot of good PMs, they build up this mindset of like, I just got to do it. my If I want to get it done, I got to do it myself. Because as I like to say, no one reports to us, right? I joke about the Spider-Man motto, you know, with great power comes responsibility. The product manager's motto is with great responsibility comes no power. No one reports to us, right? And so you end up like, you know, and I also like to say good PMs fill gaps. If there are gaps on the team, like we don't have a designer, who's going to do the wireframes? The PM will jump in and do it, right? So sometimes people get that trained mindset of I'm just going to do it myself, either on the design side or like you said, on the coding side, even from that coding it, they can be like, oh, yeah, I found this, you know, third party tool you can use. or I found this API or, you know, here you go. And I do think to your point, even if you can go that far into solution space, you need to be mindful of really the roles of the partner. And, you know, there's going to be a, a Venn diagram overlap, whether it's the PM and the designer or the PM and the developer, it's fine for the PM to be involved with, you know, co-creating the solution and things like that. But you don't want to dictate or mandate the solution, you know, to your design partner or your development partner. I think the best thing is, at the end of the day, what is each of those, you know, what is each of those three disciplines bring to the table? And I think the best product teams are where you've got strong PM working with strong design, working with strong dev, and the three of them in a Venn diagram are working very well together. If you just take a step back and say, what is each of those parties uniquely bringing to the table? The developer is obviously the one that's going to build it, and they bring the technical expertise to the table. The designer is the one who's going to design the user experience and uh, you know make it easy to use and make it pleasurable. What does the PM bring? If the PM is just doing one of those two things, what unique value are you adding? Not much. So what is your unique value add? As I like to say, designers design, developers develop, and PMs define. Our job is to define, define who really is our customer and what are their needs. As you said, the problem space, define the problem space so that then when we partner with the designers and developers, we're working with them on the solution space to those problems. So I think that's the unique value add. And I think some PMs, because they've, if they're very capable in design or dev, you know, and they've learned this, you know, just do it yourself, self-reliance kind of thing, they can fall into that trap of not relying it. Now, it also, it's variable. Sometimes on a team, you won't have a designer. So say your PM is good at design, you're going to do the designs. And that's going to fill that gap and that's going to work. Say, you know, eight months later, you're on a different team and all of a sudden you've got a rock star designer. Well, you don't want to do the same behavior. You don't want to say, hey, Miss Designer, here's the mock-ups for you. So you have to adapt to the situation. You basically have to adapt to the team situation. It's okay to fill gaps when there aren't people there. But when you have capable people there to work with, you want to make sure you're contributing your unique value add that you can. I will echo the sentiment that influence of the authority is hard. When you have zero authority and tell people what to do and how to do yeah. things, it's... Right. Yeah, convincing is hard and you have to bring your A-game, you have to bring data, you have to bring insights, you have to bring customer knowledge that other people don't have. Yeah, I, spent, I think to take those two points together, if, you, if no one reports to you and you go to the designer and say, here you go, here's the design I want you, you know, here's the design we're going to go with, they're going to have a negative reaction probably to that, <laughs> right? So it's one thing to try to get them to do, come up with the design and work with you on a design, but you can have you know, instead of a neutral reaction, you can get a negative reaction if you try to dictate things to people. It's a tricky one. But we digress so much from your career because it's an interesting topic. But I do want to go back to that a little bit. You worked sure. at Intuit, you worked at Friendster Box, you started your own company, uh, you're advising a lot of people. What are the biggest lessons learned throughout your career that helped you be where you are today? Wow, it's a big question. Yeah, I mean, one of the advantages of being a consultant is you do get to see a lot of different teams and a lot of different companies. So it gives you a much bigger data set to kind of pattern match. So as far as 
the question is, what are the biggest things that help me get to where I am? Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes. So if okay. you would think of uh, things that helped you and yeah. lessons yeah. learned along the way. I got to give a lot of credit to Intuit. In fact, probably most of the credit to Intuit. So I, as I mentioned, in, in business school, you know, you have two years. The first year, you don't have to worry about too much. But then second, year, you got to figure out what do you want to be when you're going to grow up. I actually worked on Wall Street during the summer just to check it out because I was somewhat interested in that. But then uh, it kind of confirmed that I was more interested in staying in tech. But I wasn't quite sure what to do in tech. I just knew I wanted to do tech, but that's pretty general. And then I learned about product management. And so when I did, I realized that, hey, I've worked in the Navy for five years designing nuclear submarines. I've never done like professional software development <laughs> in a commercial setting, uh, let alone product management. So I asked everybody, hey, where's the best place to learn product management? Since I wanted to learn because I'd never done it before. So I focused on a place that was going to teach me. And everybody said Intuit at the time. And so I was fortunate to get a job at Intuit. And it was it basically, I walked into a product management, product development machine. I mean, they have been doing it for years. The other day, I was just thinking about like, what are some of the oldest software products that are still around? It's like Microsoft Word, Adobe, Intuit, Quicken, Quicken is like in TurboTax, you know, but there are very few of these products that have been around for so, so long. So Intuit actually, Quicken started in the DOS days, right? So the reason that's important is just and, and, and their founders had a certain kind of consumer-centric marketing, right? Scott Cook, the founder of Intuit, came from Procter & Gamble, a consumer packaged goods company where, you know, their job is to convince you that this brand of toothpaste is better than this other brand of toothpaste, right? So they think a lot about marketing and what do consumers care about? And he brought that to Intuit. And so by the time I got to Intuit, it was the Quicken product management was basically like a well-oiled machine that I just walked into and was a sponge and just absorbed and it was kind of nice because we were doing one-year product cycles. You know, you like Quicken 98, Quicken 99, Quicken 2000. And a one-year cycle is a nice time frame where you're in each phase, the requirements definition phase, you know, the coding phase, the design phase, the user testing phase, the launch phase, and the planning phase for the next one. You're in each phase long enough that it's not super rushed and you can get good at it and, and do it well. And, and before it gets old, you're on to the next one. And so I learned so much there. And I think one of the other things we're going to talk about later, perhaps, is user research. Like we had a PhD in user research on our Quicken marketing team. And so I got to learn directly from her best practices and what not to do on user interviews and on surveys and things like that, right? Intuit is a pioneer in user research. We would do follow me homes, right? Uh, we had like the usability lab well before usability was everybody else realized how important it was. And we would do beta testing. I think in one of the first, you know, kind of public betas, that we, private betas that we would do, we would like get thousands and we would mail CD-ROMs to these people to get them to test the software and report bugs to us. So very customer centric product development, product management culture. And also now that I think about it, also just on the management side and the business side, right? How they manage the P&O, how they did people management, how they did growth and development. So all those things. Um, and I and I uh, credit not only just the general kind of Intuit culture, but also my my general manager that I had of Quicken, who took a lot, uh, invested a lot in development of everybody on the team. So, so I would say that. Um, and then after that, I was at startups, as you said, which I was excited to do because Intuit, you know, at that time, it wasn't a huge company, but it wasn't small. And, uh, and I wanted to apply at startups. And I realized it's kind of like the Wild West. <laughs> you know, there are no rules, there's no structure, and you got to figure it out. You have to adapt your processes. And so that's what I really enjoy is adapting processes and, and frameworks for the situation. But then I learned, you know, I think at startups, just learned that, um, you know, it's really important to a lot of startups, you don't have people that necessarily been there, done that before. You have like first-time developers or first-time product managers, things like that. So bringing that product leadership and vision of here's what we're going to do and coordinating everybody and communicating can really 
make the difference between success or failure, you know, at a startup. So, and then I'd say the other big lesson I've learned is that like the quality of the people you work with really matters a lot. You know, it really matters. I would rather have fewer people that are really talented and I would rather wait to recruit like a good person, a great person for my team than, you know, just say, oh, we need somebody. Let's just hire and go. Right. So, uh, so it's funny when I went to start my startup, I was like, all right, great. I'm going to go talk to all the developer, my developer friend, rock stars from Intuit and from my startups. Unfortunately, none of them were available at the time for various reasons. Like, I'm like, oh no, what am I going to do, right? So I was hoping to have like a CTO co-founder, but I just didn't have one because no one was available. But, uh, you know, same thing in design. You know, if you get a rock star designer, it's going to like just change things tremendously or a rock star developer on your team. Just one, having just one rock star in any functional area on your team. You hear about people talking about the 10X coder. It's true. There's a 10X employee for every field, basically. And it's hard to identify those. It's hard to interview for that. That's one of the things that I feel like, but it's so, so important. I'm 100% with you. But there's one point that you kind of glanced over, and this is something that is not a typical career path at all. You mentioned that you've been involved in submarine design. I don't know any other product managers in my career that worked on submarines. What did that experience teach you? And how was transitioning from that to product management? (sighs) It actually, it was great. You're right. And I'm glad you went back to that because that actually was also foundational for product management. And so, yeah, the way this worked, like I had a Navy ROTC scholarship and the way that works is they kind of help you out with school and then you have to serve in the Navy. Well, you have to decide, you have to apply for where you want to serve in the Navy. And the Navy has like ships and it has airplanes. You can be a pilot like Top Gun, right? And I got to fly an F-18. That was a lot of fun during my training. But, uh, But I decided to go more for the submarine world. And then within the submarine world, there's like the headquarters of the submarine world where they design the submarines. It's a place called New Naval Reactors. It's a very special place. It's kind of like NASA for submarines, much smaller. I think we had like three or 400 professionals that worked at headquarters there. And it was started by um, someone who's one of my heroes. His name's Admiral Hyman Rickover. So if you're interested in that, there's a few books out there. Anyway, he um, he basically single-handedly, when nuclear energy came out in the 40s, was discovered, he said, you know what? I think that'd be a great energy source for a submarine because before that, submarines had to refuel. They had to constantly get fuel. You have to surface and get fuel. kind of blows your stealth if you have to surface and get refueled. Oh, there's the sub. We could all see it. So he said, you know what? I think this would be great. So he created a very special organization. So long story short, I applied and I was selected for that. And it was great. And I didn't realize it at the time until I got to Intuit and I was doing software product management. I didn't realize I was basically doing like highly technical submarine product management. Even though I was an engineer working on technical things, very, very technical system designs, at the end of the day, it was just very technical product management. What does that mean? Well, it meant that like the way we structured the org, we would divide up responsibilities, you know, and uh, we all talk about the importance of cross-functional teams, right? We all know like for a good software product, you need to, PM needs to coordinate with design and user research and, you know, engineering and QA. That's what I mean by cross-functional, right? You divide and conquer different people. It takes a village of skills to deliver a successful product. Well, same thing in the submarine world. There are people that work on the system design. There are people that work on the component design. There are people that work on material science. There are people that work on supply chain. They divide it up into about 20 different disciplines. It was just like the, and we talk about a matrix organization and a lot of times people have a hard time because the matrix isn't clear and it's hard to get buy-in and you know and stakeholders and things like that. This was the most efficient, effective matrix. In hindsight, I didn't know it because my first job out of college, the most effective and efficient matrix organization I've ever worked in. And so it taught me how to work cross-functionally. And like, of course, in order to get this done, I've got to go get 
agreement from these other people, right? So it taught me this working on a very, the other thing I think is working on a very complex product, right? There's a, there's a nature of when you judge a product manager's work, well, how complex was it? Were you just working on like a little feature, you know, or were you working on like a major product with a lot of, you know, interrelated systems and coupling and things like that and dependencies. And so I, early on in my career, I worked on submarines, which are very complex in a very teamwork, collaborative, you know, good matrix organization. And then the last thing is they really, um, they really delegated a lot of responsibility. This organization, you basically, you came in as like a 22 year old college grad, you reported to a group head who reported to a section head who reported to a four-star admiral who's like the third most senior admiral in the Navy. So very flat management structure, even though it was in the Navy, it was more like a technical organization. So there was no yes, sir, no, sir. There was no rank baloney. It was a technical meritocracy, which I think a lot of us ascribe to have, you know, our companies be. So for all those reasons, and just working with very short people, the last thing I'll say is because I started there, when you think about a product, think about the amount of time you spend in three categories, designing it, building it, and like testing it, right? You can think about design, dev, and QA for software. And most of the time, most software products, I would say like most, like 80 plus percent of the time is spent building it, developing it, right? Well, when you do a submarine, it's actually the opposite. It's so complex that you need to put so much thought into designing it, that designing it takes like five times as long as building it. And so it, it really hammered into me the importance of clarity of requirements and thinking in the problem space. We'd always get clear on the requirements. I would work on system designs and we wouldn't even, we would be working with conceptual models of what the design would be, not even talking about what the real, what the solution or real system was going to be, but talking about what the requirements were. So, so those are some of the takeaways. It's a long answer, but um, it was a very special place that did, I feel like, prepare me for product management because we did have a very effective matrix org. We were doing cross-functional collaboration very well, and it was a very complex product. You know, we spent a lot of time thinking about design and requirements. I think the risk profile is also vastly different than any yes. tech product. Yes, that's true. That's why I like to jokingly say, you know, waterfall does make sense for like submarines and space shuttles. You don't want to have like, let's launch the MVP. Oh, it 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 sank. Let's iterate to submarine 1.1. Yeah, the stakes are higher, definitely. Um, but it's, then it was kind of nice to go from that to like one to a, like a, a CD-ROM package with a one-year product cycle. So the other thing I didn't mention is from the time you say, okay, here's the high-level objectives of the submarine to when it's actually designed, built, tested, and in the water and ready to operate, that's 12 years. So 12-year you know, life cycle for the dev process. Then to go to a one-year product is great. And now we're all on the web and mobile where it's like every week or two, we're pushing a new release. So so I've seen the full spectrum. And to your point, you kind of adapt, you need to adapt your processes based on the risk profile. And the other factor is how easy is it to change things, right? When you're literally welding steel plates together, if you make a mistake, go, oops, we need to iterate. It's really hard to iterate. Or you spent like two years designing a specialized pump. You can't go, oops, we got to change it now, right? But if it's a software bug, you can just patch it, you know, and fix it in an hour, right? I will never complain about Waterfall again. Here in the 12 <laughs> years is the time frame. But for more than a decade now, you've worked as a product manager, trainer, and consultant. What led you to this particular career decision? Because as a product manager, you can always choose to start working on, you know, at some other corporation, some other company, maybe start another startup or anything of that nature. But you decided to say, no, I'm going to help people become better product managers. Why is that? Yeah, well, honestly, it was a bit of a bit of luck on uh, random chance in that what happened is after doing a few startups after Intuit that were web startups, I realized, you know what, like the web 
is here to stay, obviously, and many of the future products are going to be web products. And while I've been coding since I was nine, and I know how to code, and I know, and I'm a double E major, and I know all this technical stuff, <coughs> I don't know how to code this web stuff. So in 2005, I decided, you know what, I'm just going to go and invest and take classes in HTML, CSS, JavaScript, PHP, Unix, Apache, and Photoshop. And just like, you know, invest and just learn the web stuff so that I'm more comfortable and more knowledgeable about it. And while I was doing that, I got an offer to be a VP of product for a startup. And I really liked the team and what they were doing. But I literally was taking 20 hours a week of classes. I was like, let me just get this done. I want to just like six months and finish it and then I can uh, go back. And so I said, hey, hey, guys, I'd love to work with you, but I can't do it full time because I'm taking all these classes. Can, can I be your like interim or part time VP of product? And they said yes. And so that's how I became, you know, I'm basically for 30 hours a week. I, I was effectively their VP of product, but I just was doing it as a consultant instead of as an employee. And that went really well. And then there was another startup that needed a VP of product. And so it ended up being a similar situation. And I realized, well, this is great. I've discovered this opportunity where I can work with, you know, companies um, to help them. And, and at the time, it was often a post-Series A company. So they had uh, it was a great space to work in because they had enough going on that they had enough traction and enough team to raise an A round, but they didn't have like hardly usually anybody in product management yet, right? And so you add me to the equation and I can add a lot of value in um, in doing that. And so uh, so that was great. And once I did it uh, two or three times, I realized this is a great, this is awesome. I'm constantly meeting new, amazing entrepreneurs and people. I'm seeing, you know, what they're doing right. I'm helping them do things better. I'm cross-pollinating learnings across different companies, you know. So it was great. And, uh, you know, for example, in those early days, I also, that's when I worked with Box. I was the, I helped them out as an interview of product post-series A. I ran their first user test. They had, they had never done a user test, right? And so I ran their first user test, which was very eye-opening for them. So, so once I got, once I got, after doing, you know, two or three, I was like, this is great. I can make a career out of doing this. And there were a lot of advantages, you know, to that. So you're the expert in the product management space. Uh, there's a lot of folks that are listening to the show that are new in their career. They're still exploring, exploring the space. What do you yes. think are the things that are missing the most based on your experience in the product management space? The th like skills that are missing the most? Skills or, or, when you say or things? specific abilities or maybe just focus areas where folks mm. are just missing them or they're just kind of the obvious yeah. unknown. Yeah, I mean, we talk, that's the thing about, uh, in our discussion here, we talked about like some people, when you think about the PM job, it's a unique job in the sense that to be successful, you do need a wide range of skills, right? That, that may not normally be focused in a single person, right? You need to be able to listen well, like for user, re user research is critical, right? Um, and I know in some larger companies, you might have a user researcher or user research team you can lean on, and that's good. But in many situations, you don't. And even if you do, I think you have to have a certain level of involvement and knowledge about user research. You need to be a really good listener to do that, right? You need to be a good listener to get stakeholder buy-in and get that cross-functional collaboration. Communication is key. So not only do you need to be able to get the listener, you need to be able to articulate your points. We talked about influencing without authority, right? If you're not good at that, you're dead in the water. You could have the world's best ideas, but if you can't convince anybody how great they are, it's never going to see the light of day, right? So you've got, and it's funny because we start out with these soft skills of listening and communication. You also need to be able to come up with a vision and to kind of like point the team in the right direction, right? And it doesn't mean you dictate the vision. It should be co-created with the team, but someone's got to drive it, right? Like who's driving this? Who's, you know, who's leading us? It's leadership, but it's not formal leadership, right? It's informal leadership. The other critical skill is prioritization. I mean, it's just, there are always way more ideas 
floating around, then you have resources. So prioritization is key, constant prioritization. And I mean like rank order. I remember the first time I saw a PRD and it was like, there are 15 highs and 15 mediums and 15 lows. I'm like, well, that's good that we did high, medium, low, but of the 15 highs, what's the top one? Which one should Dev work on first? You know, if you're just kind of don't, you're just kind of punting on that, you're kind of leaving it. Uh, up for judgment, right? So I call it ruthless prioritization, you know, rank order, constantly be rank ordering things, right? Anytime I see a list from anybody, the first question I ask is, is it prioritized? And if it's not, I'm like, go prioritize it and then show me it when it's prioritized. Right? Don't just show me a randomly ordered list, show me a prioritized list. So you gotta, in, you know, you gotta be flexible, but you gotta, you gotta reprioritize a lot, but you should always at any point in time, be crystal clear on the priorities. And when changes happen, that's fine. Change the priorities and then make sure everybody knows what the new priorities are. So those are all important things. And then... I actually think the longer I get in my career, I think why is the most important question that PMs need to ask and have the answer for. Why this feature instead of this one, right? Why should we do, you know, why this, why that, why, why, you know, the people. And then one thing I see a lot of times, it's funny, I always laugh, is like somebody, and it's often a PM or it might be a developer, somebody on the team, I'll be like, why are you doing this? They're like, well, you know, the VP said that we should build this, we should do this. And I'm like, yeah, but do you know why? Like, How's it going to value? I, I don't know, but I'm sure they know. They would, they know. They're the VP. They know. And it's so funny how a lot of times people just assume that because it came down from on high that someone must have done the due diligence and must have thought it all out and must know what's going on. And a lot of times that's just not the case. The emperor has no clothes. It's just like, no, there's not really a good case for that. So now you obviously need to ask why in a diplomatic way. But that's really what it's about. And it's funny because a lot of times I'll jokingly call PMs a reality messenger. Not jokingly. I'll call them reality messenger. You're the reality messenger. It's like, okay, we've got three devs. You know, they're going to code this. They're going to code as much as they're going to code. How many hours are going to code? We can give them this set of things or we can get them this set of things to ask them to code. Same thing with the designers, right? What is the set of things that's going to maximize the ROI on their time? Like, that's really what it's about, right? And so it's not quite at the level of physical science or engineering because there's a lot of uncertainty and gray and fog, but it's basically like, how do you make sure that what you're launching is going to create customer value? So you have to build up insights. You have to, you know, be able to build a model of customer insights and, and be able to articulate why, why we should go after this opportunity and why these are the right features and why this is the right call for an MVP and why this is the right roadmap and this is why this feature can wait and why this one can't. There's so many whys, right? The, the big thing that I see, you talked about customers and this is where PMs usually come, come back to the engineering teams and say, well, the customer asked for the button to be green. Let's make it green. But nobody bothered to ask why. Is it a discoverability problem? Yeah. Is it a velocity problem? Like what's the actual problem? It's interesting. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's funny because I think I think it's it's one, it's it's not common for customers to be so dictatorial on the solution space. They can be for sure, but it, they will most likely just give you negative feedback and say, I don't like this or this doesn't work for me. It's confusing. Um, sometimes you do get people say, I want you to build exactly this for me. And this happens a lot with startups, by the way, startups, they're trying to survive. They're trying to generate revenue. You know, the salesperson's, you know, has a call with IBM and it's like, IBM says, okay, if you build, da, 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 we'll, 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 we'll sign up for your product. And they're all excited. Oh my gosh, we got IBM. We got a big contract. They told us what to build. We got to build this. The number of times I've seen a startup build what was specified by a big company client and then it not get used or actually create value is like, it's sad the number of times that happens. And what you realize is you thought you were doing the right thing by just saluting and saying, yes, sir. Yes, ma'am. We'll build exactly what you asked for. 
But the problem was they didn't even realize what they wanted. They were in the solution space. They didn't ask the whys. You see what I mean? This happens all the time. Um, and so you have to ask, again, you got to get why and clear on the problem. That, that's the whole problem space for solution space that, that I talk about in the talks. And a lot of these things are covered in your book, The Lean Product yes. Playbook. So tell yes. us more, what inspired you to write the book? Because at some point you might have decided that, you know what, I need to put this on paper. Yeah, well, you know, the book is a lot of work. So um, writing a book is a lot of work, as I'm, as I'm sure a lot of other authors can attest to. So what, what the genesis of that would be speaking, basically giving talks on product management, sharing lessons learned and sharing frameworks. And I started speaking in 2007, actually at, I just had BJ Fogg is a, a Stanford researcher. He just recently spoke for the second time at my meetup. In uh, 2007, that summer is when Facebook launched their F8 app platform. It was amazing. He pivoted very quickly and said, you know what, let's do a Facebook app class. And like that fall, like right, you know, very fast for academia, he did that class. And so one of the co-professors who knew me said, hey, you know, we want, why don't you come in and talk about product management to these, this class of, of students that's going to be generating Facebook apps. And also I had, because I had worked at Friendster, he knew that I had done viral loop optimization. I probably one of the earliest people that had done viral loop optimization. And so I came in to speak. And so that was the first time I ever put slides together in my life was in 2007. I look back at those slides now and they look like they're horrible, <laughs> but it was the first slides I put together. And then from that, I then started speaking at like web 2.0 conference. I mean, this is before there were even product management conferences. They're more like web conferences or tech conferences or entrepreneurship conferences. And I started speaking at all those events um, and generally spoke more and more and just kind of, you know, what, what I would do is great. It was very iterative is I'd give a talk. I'd see what resonated well with people, what didn't. I'd see what questions, mainly the questions I would get. Well, what do we do about this? And then between that and my next talk, I'd add some new slides or I'd go into that topic. I'd be like, well, a lot of people are asking about UX design. Let me go into that, right? And um, and so that the kind of the slide where and the frameworks kind of developed over time in concert with the consulting, right? Because I mean, in the parallel, I'm consulting with all these different companies seeing all these different challenges and helping them solve them. And then I was teaching a workshop. I remember the, one of the pivotal moments was I was teaching a workshop and I had a really bright class. There's a lot of people that were bright and very enthusiastic and they were very specific and they, they, they wanted me to like spell out a process, a step-by-step -step process. They're like, okay, what do you do first? And then what do you do? What do you do? And I remember writing on the whiteboard and like running the first time I had ever kind of tried to string together a process of what you do when you're trying to develop a new product. I remember kind of going, running out of room on the whiteboard and, and, and that made me start to think about a process. I wanted to always, I kind of wanted to write a book, but it's a lot of work. So I never really kind of got into doing it. And then Wiley reached out to me and said, Hey, we, you know, have you thought about writing a book? I'm like, actually I have, I just haven't got around, you know, haven't committed to doing it. And so that kind of led to the book being written, which took 14 months to write. Um, I was working kind of pretty much full time uh, while I was doing it. So I was doing nights and weekends and uh, it got published in 2015. So. And it's a timeless piece ever since. To that point and talking about the book, a lot of the ways you outlined in the publication around the thinking about the product, the separation routine, the problem space and the solution space, things like the uh, cohort retention curves, super important for any product management organization. How do you see in your experience those frameworks evolve over time? Because one of the things that I've seen often is product managers snap in this mode of saying, I follow this framework because the book says so, and that's it. Uh, how do you see them change over time? 
Yeah. It's funny because I think frameworks are very helpful in product management. You know, as we know, you can't get a formal college degree in product management or anything, right? I mean, I think actually CMU now has a master's you can get in it, but 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 for all practical purposes, you can't. And and it's funny, uh, the other day someone said, you know, PM is frameworks. And then I was like, yeah, you need a framework to know which, when to use which framework, basically, right? Because they apply in different situations. And that's the thing about a lot of these frameworks is <clears throat> a lot of times the answer is what's the ideal framework is it depends on the situation and the context, right? So as far as how they've evolved, I mean, um, I do see some people, I'm always delighted when I see someone take something and just run with it, like importance and satisfaction, for example, right? I came up with that framework at Intuit when I was trying to prioritize features for the next version of Quicken. And I had, because we had that market researcher, we had like like, you know, quality primo survey results. And we had lots of users who had big sample size. And I was like analyzing that data and slicing and dicing it. And that's kind of how I came up with important satisfaction. Well, you know, the other day, someone reached out to me and said, I read your book. I loved it. And can I, can I show you what we're doing? And they like had done all this amazing importance versus satisfaction analysis. So that was really exciting to see. The, the other thing I will say is it did take 14 months to write the book. Uh, it's 335 pages. It's very comprehensive. My goal was like, if I'm going to write a book, I want to like cover all the things you need to know about product management. I mean, I have other things in my talks like marketing and messaging that I didn't even include in there. But, you know, one of the things is, is, you know, in writing the book, it was like, you know, it was like a deadline. It's like having a deadline. It was a very waterfall process. You have a deadline, right? And so there were certain areas where I was hoping to maybe, you know, extend some frameworks. And And the other thing to go back is, some of those frameworks were created while I was writing the book. So some of them existed before the book in my talks, but like the product market fit pyramid, I created that while writing the book and the lean product process I created while writing the book. One area where I didn't have time, I kind of ran out of time was in the value proposition area uh, as far as having some public examples of that. I have a generic example, but in my talk since then, I've given public examples applying that, like reverse engineering the value prop grid for Instagram and Uber. So that's kind of extensions of what I had done or good case studies. And then one of the really things, things I was really excited about back to importance of satisfaction was I give a formula for how to calculate the opportunity score. I always wanted to create a visualization that was more just intuitive to see the opportunity score, but I just didn't have time. And then uh, a few years ago, in working with a client, I kind of had a little inspiration and I was able to come up with like a heat map visualization. So that's again, in some of my more recent talks, but not in the book. So those are the things, some of the things that I've done to extend some of the work in the book. And I'm curious because you've alluded to the fact that PMs need a breadth of skills, marketing, research, analytics. Yep, yeah. uh, and one of the things that I've recently been talking with a colleague as well is that the, the biggest thing that a PM should be doing is you have that meta skill of being able to solve a problem. And yes. how do you scale your own skills as a product manager over time? What helps you learn? Yeah, I do think at fundamentally problem solving or decision making is like the core skill of a product manager, right? And so as far as how do you get better over time, I also think just kind of intrinsic curiosity, like the best PMs I know are very curious. They ask why, right? Like I just mentioned how why is really important. It's like, 
you know, they see some anomaly in the data and instead of just going, oh, that's interesting and moving on, they go, huh, I wonder what that is. And, you know, they may pull that thread or in qualitative, they get some something surprising and they go through it, right? So, so I think it's really that curiosity. And because it does take a village, I found what served me well in my career is I've leaned into learning about the adjacent skills. I just gave a talk in January at the meetup on UX design. I'm in the process of editing the video. So I was rewatching it and I realized like my first few months in PM, I wrote, you know, I wrote what I thought was a great, I, I contributed to writing what I thought was a great PRD back in the day when you'd write the long PRDs and MRDs, right? But then I realized, you know, later in the product cycle, I'm like, we could write the world's best PRD, but if the UX design isn't good, it doesn't matter. So I suddenly had this aha moment, like, wow, there's this thing called UX design. It's really important that I don't really know anything about. So I went out and I saw books on it. At the time, there weren't that many books on it. The Inmates Are Running the Asylum by Alan Cooper uh, was out. There were maybe a couple other books out there, really more like HCI, Human Computer Interaction. I took an HCI class while at business school. I leaned into that. And then, you know, um, I went and took a class in visual design. So so I use it as an example. And I've since then, I've read a lot of books. And I, I think the point is by learning about the adjacent functions, and I would actually put UX design at the top. It can really help you be a better product manager. It can help you better critique designs. It can help you have better conversation with your designers. And worst case, if you don't have a designer, you can help fill that gap more effectively. Now, if you do have a rockstar designer, then just let them drive the bus and let them do it. Likewise, marketing, right? Learning enough about marketing and messaging and positioning. Analytics, learning about analytics, right? Just learning, learning, just leaning in and learning and being a sponge, you know? I was just blown away. I just was doing, I'm doing an assessment for a large organization. I talked to a lot of people and all of a sudden I talked to one person and she pulled up all these amazing dashboards and analytics that she had just taken upon herself to do. And I'm like, oh my gosh, every other team should have these too. Like, you know what I mean? So just leaning into adjacent things, like learning enough about, you don't need to go get a degree in CS. You may not even need a coding class, but just like learning enough about technical stuff, front end, back end, that kind of stuff to have a conversation, right? So, and I think constantly self-assessing and say, where am I weak? Like where, where am I weak that's, that I could better be better performing if I weren't weak at that, whatever it is. Like, no, no, you know, everybody always has something to work on. There's always something, there's always new tools coming out. And that's part of it too, staying abreast of the latest tools, right? There's, there's an exciting time to be in product management, especially like prototyping tools, you know, like um, Figma, like that wasn't around a few years ago, right? And so now you've got these great tools, you know, so. It's interesting how Figma just swooped in and took over all the Envision and Sketch and Balsamic. It's just everything is Figma now. But it's yeah. interesting. I'm curious, again, uh, on your point around the breadth instead of depth. You don't need to get a degree. Mm -hmm. You just need to be good. What's your litmus sure. test at knowing, okay, I know enough. If I've identified the weakness that I'm weak at UX design or data or talking to customers, how do I yeah. know that, okay, I read some books, I take some courses, I talk yeah. to people, but this is good enough. Uh, I'll answer your question, but part of me has a hard time because there's this idea of continuous improvement. And so there's good enough, but that I, I would like, I wouldn't say good enough means you should stop learning in that area. You know, it means maybe you can reduce your investment in that. But um, I, I like to, yeah, I like to always be learning even in areas that I think I'm good. And, and I would say that Another key component, so you read the books, you read the blog posts, you watch the videos, you listen to the podcasts like this. But at the end of the day, you have to apply it. And how you really learn is applying it. So it's like on the job training, like you have to apply it. So say you're trying to learn how to do a good, a better job at interviewing users. The best way to get better at it is to interview a lot of users, actually do it. And that's what I see a lot of people, they kind of get caught up in 
learning how to do it, learning best practices, but then actually doing it. You have to do it. There's no, you should learn the theory by all means. And my book has plenty of concepts and theory, but the point is you need to apply it. And that's how you really get better at it. And then I think, you know, I think when you, you don't have negative surprises and things go well and you get the desired outcomes, that's how you can feel confident that I'm good enough in that area that I can, I can maybe go focus on other areas that I want to learn and get better at. Well, and the interesting point on that is that sometimes there is that challenge of applicability. So for example, one of the big things that comes up when I mentor folks is folks that want to break into product management. They want to become product managers, but they're not necessarily working as PMs. They're still in college, they're in school, and they don't necessarily have that obvious point of like, well, okay, I want to be a PM, but how do I where, where do I apply it? I'm not in an internship. Yeah. I'm not a company. What's your recommendation for those kind of things where I want to learn how to be a PM, but I'm not a PM? Yeah. And that's the challenge. There's a, it's a catch 22 where people that are hiring PMs want people to have PM experience. And if you're not a PM, then it can be hard to break into PM. So it's tough. So the number one way is to get transferred into a PM job within your own company. Like you may be working in customer success or QA or design or something or dev. There's plenty of people that go from dev to PM, right? That's the best way because for whatever reason, you know, there's this perceived risk of hiring someone that's never done it before. And it kind of makes sense, obviously. But within a company, because you're more of a known quantity, they tend to be more willing to let you jump over there, right? So, and I've seen, you know, I have a friend of mine who transitioned from one role into PM in a company. And then he was smart. He actually waited till he was a senior PM and then he left. And then now he had senior PM title on. So now he could get a senior PM job, right? So, so that's the easiest thing is if you're working in a company, get them to try to, you know, get them to transfer. And, you know, short of that, just go bug the PMs and say, PMs always have way more work than they can do. If somebody, if I was a PM in a company, someone said, hey, Dan, I'm really interested in PM. What can I take off your plate? What can I help you with? I'm sure I could find some work that they could help me out with, whether it's going through some, you know, user feedback or whatever, looking at some analytics or running a report, right? So if you can't formally get the job assignment, then kind of try to sidle your way in there. Just kind of sidle in there by saying, yeah, I'm going to start, you know, go hanging out with them, um, offering to do work, you know, maybe attending some meetings, you know, getting coffee, informational interviews with people that are PMs, you know, um, and that builds an affinity. So then maybe then when an opening does happen, you're more likely to be slotted into that position within your own company. So that's the easiest way. If you're not in a company, if you're just a student or you're not, you know, you obviously want to read all the things we just said, read the books, read the blogs, watch the videos, podcasts, events, conferences. That's none of that is doing anything though, right? It's learning. It's important, but you're not doing anything. And so I think one of the best things you can do is create a website for yourself like danolson.com or whatever, you know, johnsmith.com. And I'll tell you this, like one of my other clients, Medallia, I worked with them for a long time. And one of the main things that I did is I built their product management team. When I joined, they had six PMs. They were all relatively junior, right? And the general, it's a great company. You know, the IPO, it's a wonderful company. I love the culture they have strong product team um, that we built over time there, but their general hiring philosophy was, you know, hire some smart, high horsepower, intellectual horsepower people. And we'll, you know, even if they haven't worked in that job, we'll, we'll like, you know, we'll train them and they'll be, you know, we'll, they'll figure it out. Well, that's kind of what we had on the PM team. We had a lot of junior smart, kind of generally smart people, but no one that had done PM for a while. And so I basically was like, okay, well, let's, let's hire, add some directors in, let's add some leaders. And then we also decided to uh, add some associate PM. So you see that more often, right? So that can be a way to break in. Well, we had a bazillion people and we had just raised money from Sequoia. It was a very hot company. 
we had people over tons of applications for our associate PM positions, right? And I remember one person in particular stood out because they actually had like a website and they had their portfolio on their website. Now we're used to designers having portfolios. Product people can have portfolios too, right? You put up the roadmaps that you've got. Now you can redact them. Some people are like, I can't put it up there. Well, fine, just black out anything that's confidential or sensitive, but show me how you're thinking. Show me how you do product work. Show me what you've done. And now if you're like, well, Dan, I don't have any work samples yet because I haven't worked anywhere. Well, there are people who've gotten creative there too. Go do an assessment of a product. Okay, Instagram just rolled out a new version too. Go do a detailed analysis of what you you like about it and what you think they could have done better, right? So product teardowns, product reviews, sharing your thoughts. That lets me know that not only are you learning about it, but you're really passionate about it and you're demonstrating your thinking to me. Um, you know, and actually, so several of the APMs either had websites or had worked on their own side hustle projects and they showed me, let me show you the prototypes. And I'm like, great, you know, I can see that they prototyped this thing. They thought about it. They thought about the requirements. They prototyped it, right? So I would say show, don't tell. Like show, don't tell. Like don't just say I want to be a PM. Show me how you want to be a PM and something that you could point to a website, right? The other thing is I love it. It's like, you know, I'm interviewing someone that want to be a web PM. I'm like, where's your website? Oh, I don't have one. You want to be a web PM and you don't have a website. Okay. You know, well, no, of course. And I know not every web PM has a website, but we have plenty of other people that are applying that do have websites and it, it's not a big deal, but it's just a simple filter to be like, this person knows enough about technology and the web to get a simple website. It's so simple with like Squarespace or WordPress you know, to have a website. And then, you know, what do you do when you apply for a job? What do I do? I Google your name. I Google your name <laughs> and and I end up at your LinkedIn and I see if you have a website or not. And if you don't have websites, kind of like, okay, well, you know, it's not that hard to do. How how much are you hustling? You're, you're not employed right now. You're unemployed. What are you doing? Not making a website right now. And you it's know? easy. So, There's tools. It's, you know, you can. Yeah, it's so simple now with Squarespace. You don't know, know anything about coding. You just so we're getting to the top of the hour. So I have two questions for you. One, okay. if you have a parting advice for aspiring product managers, and the second one, and I know there's an exciting uh, announcement about your upcoming public workshop, but in addition to that, where can yeah. people find you online? So those are the two questions. Okay, cool. So, so on the PM, you said aspiring. What level of aspiration are we at? Because I'll tailor the advice to the level. Let's talk somebody mid-career now. Mid-career. Okay, cool. That's an interesting point. So we already kind of covered breaking into it. So mid-career is interesting. And I'm helping a couple people right now that just got promoted from like senior PM or director in a startup to now in a position where they're managing PMs. And this can be a very difficult transition for PMs. I mentioned earlier how PMs, you kind of, a lot of times you get trained that if you want to do something right, you just do it yourself. Or obviously, we're not the ones coding and we hopefully have designers and stuff. So we're not doing everything ourselves. But in general, it's like if you wanted to get it done right and on time and there's no one that can do it, you can lean on, you're going to just kind of be self-reliant. And so you get this individual contributor mindset and then you get the reward you get for being such a good PM and working your way up the ladder, up the career is now you're managing PMs. And oftentimes when you first manage PMs, you're still doing individual work as a PM. So you're a player coach, we call it, right? And so the IC part is not much of an adjustment. Usually you get the bigger, more complex products or teams, and then you give the more junior product people the stuff that's not as complex and you know they work their way up over time as well. But the people management part can be challenging because you're so used to doing it yourself. 
And I like to remind people, people management is a whole distinct skill set, right? Why would you be uh, anything? Why would you be amazing at some new skill that you've never had to do before, right? All our things being equal, you're probably not going to be amazing at it. You may have some intrinsic potential, but again, like on the job training and actually applying the skill and seeing what works and what doesn't, that's how you get better at it basically, right? And sure, of course, by all means, read the theory, read the books, all that. But I think a lot of times people just get thrown in as first-time people managers, especially in startups. I'm talking also about stuff and it happens in big companies too. You get thrown in as a first time manager without much training or support or expectations. And we're all so busy. Everyone's so busy running around, right? And if you think about, again, if I go back to Intuit, where I saw good examples of people management and coaching and development, you know, what do they do? They make time each week for a one-on-one. That's often the first things that goes out the window is, oh, we're all too busy. We're not going to do one-on-ones, right? That's an important touch point for the employee manager relationship. And the other thing is, you know, to make sure it's not a hundred percent focus on just the work to be done, but that you're also kind of at least carving out some time for like meta things like how are you doing? What's going on with your you know, career development, your job satisfaction, things like that? What skills do you want to focus on, right? Those are some of the best conversations that I value the most is our GM would say, okay, great, you've got your day job, but like what, what are your aspirations and what do you want to develop, right? For example, I knew I wanted to learn more about marketing. Again, I mentioned I leaned in, right? And the way we divide our team up and into it, PM and marketing, we work together, but we kind of divided and conquered. So we didn't often, often get as much visibility into marketing, but I knew it was important and it was an area I didn't know about. So he let me sit in on a lot of those kind of meetings. And there was one research project in particular we did. We did a market segmentation exercise. I'm so glad that I was able to kind of ride shotgun and just observe that and learn from that. So anyway, I think that transition from individual contributor to people manager is a difficult one. I would embrace it like anything, approach it like anything else. It's a new thing. You know, before it happens, try to bone up on all the things, try to do, you know, in, you know, find people that you think are good people managers and have coffee with them and ask them, well, you know, what, you know, what are your tips on how to be a good people manager? So it's an interesting thing. And the same thing happens in the dev world. You get some rockstar developer who's an individual contributor and they get promoted to be a manager. And a lot of times they're either not good at it and or they really dislike it. And it's a very different job. It can be a very different job, uh, especially if you're going from like 100% individual contributor to like zero or very low individual contributor. That's a very big transition. So yeah, that's some advice I would say that, you know, if you're approaching that, just be mindful and think about how to be successful in that new role with those new skills. And then the question about where can folks find out more about my stuff, uh, my website, I do have a web website. I, I practice what I preach here. It's dan-olson.com. D-A-N-O-L-S-E-N.com. And that's where I post, you know, my speaking schedule and videos and blog posts and things like that. I also have an email newsletter people can opt into there. And as you mentioned, I do, I try to, I do a lot of private workshops. I also try to do public workshops where anybody can come and sign up. And my next public workshop is April 20th to the 22nd. That's one of the other things with Zoom is chop up the workshops into like three and a half hour chunks. So it's like three days of three and a half hours. So like about 10 and a half hours total where I basically cover the book. It's like the movie version of the book. People can you know find the link to that from my website. Also, I mentioned Lean Product Meetup. It's free to join the meetup group, meetup.com slash lean hyphen product. Um, you can come check that out. Our next event is March 23rd. So I think this podcast will be out before then, but you can sign up. And then I put all of my talks on my YouTube channel, as well as all the talks of the speakers that I host at Lean Products. So we have over 100 talks, video talks there. I also do fireside chats with my um, guests, and uh, we just crossed 6,000 subscribers. So it's it's probably one of the channels that has the most hours of product management content on it. And it's just youtube.com slash Dan Olson, and you can subscribe and be notified when we post new channels there. And then of course on LinkedIn. So those are some places where people can find me and then twitter.com slash Dan Olson. So all those places. 
Excellent. And I can't think of anyone better that knows more about product management than yourself. So it's a must, must subscribe. At that, Dan, thank you so much for being here with us. You sharing your insights and perspectives. And I'm sure that a lot of folks learn a lot. If we're talking about the analogy of the sponge, this was the perfect environment to be that sponge. So thank you so much for being here. Well, Dan, thanks a lot. I had a lot of fun talking with you. Appreciate thanks, it. Thanks, Dan.